Okay, I'm looking up synonyms for wetland, and there are some good ones. Marsh, fen, slough, bog, sump, swamp, vernal pool, muskig, wash, and my personal favorite, quagmire. This is the only time I'll mention the word quagmire in this episode, but feel free to hear it every single time I do say wetland. Hi, I'm Kate Harubi, and this is Go Forth in Science podcast, where we combine adventure and science into a tale that will hopefully make the next time you step outside even better. In this month's 20 Minutes of Science content, we're talking about land that's a little wetter than the ground around it. And if you think that's not very exciting, well, hold your horses because there are wetlands that catch fire, wetlands that are also mountains, and wetlands that are preservers of history. Today we are talking about wetlands and we have the one, the only, Tom Ruby. So who are you and why are you qualified to talk about wetlands? Well, I believe I'm qualified to talk about wetlands because I've spent the last 30 years as a wetland scientist. First, I started working on marine wetlands with the Audubon Society, and then I switched to freshwater wetlands for 22 years. I was working with the Department of Ecology. I was basically the senior aquatic ecologist at Washington State Department of Ecology. And you're also my dad. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yes, but that has nothing to do with wetlands. I don't know. A good good chunk of my childhood existed in wetlands, which actually is maybe one of the reasons why this podcast exists. I think it's all tied together. So where around the world have you studied wetlands? Well, my first year in graduate school, I went to the University of Washington Department of Oceanography, and I started working on marine wetlands seaweed beds. And that morphed into doing seaweed bed studies in Scotland for my PhD. And that morphed into looking at salt marshes in Massachusetts and Gloucester. And then that morphed into working with freshwater wetlands in Massachusetts and then freshwater wetlands here in Washington State. So what is a wetland? Well, nobody really knows. I feel like every (laughs) single time I interview a scientist on the podcast, I like ask them a big picture question like this. And they're always like, well, we don't know because we're still learning things. (laughs) Well, also wetland is an interface between the water environment and the land environment. So it's a gradation. 80% of terrestrial species use wetlands at some point in their life cycle. So like, even if they don't live in a wetland, usually they still use it or use its product. The example I like to use is elephants. You often see elephants playing in mud puddles, right? Well, those are wetlands. They sort of trample all the vegetation in them, but they're still wetlands. (laughs) Okay, so we have a wetland. It's a gradient between an upland, a dry area, and down below you have a wet area. Why are wetlands important in our environment? They're two to three percent of the land, but 80 percent of the species that live on land use them. First of all, it's a high area of primary productivity because you've got lots of water, lots of nutrients. So the productivity is usually quite high, which means animals eat the plants or the bugs eat the plants. Other bugs eat more bugs, animals than eat, you know, and so on and so forth. So they're productive. Two, they provide water in areas where sometimes there's no water source. It's a very small percentage of the land mass of the world, but they provide a significant function for a lot of animals and plants. 
Do you have a favorite wetland plant or animal? I think one of my favorite plants is bog myrtle because whenever you walk through it, it has a wonderful smell. As long as you don't step on the bog and sink to your knees. <laughs> what does it smell like? Oh, it's like an aromatic herb, like thyme or sage or something like that. Does it exist in a lot of wetlands around here? Yeah, it has to be a bog though. Okay, so what is the difference between a bog and a wetland? A bog is a wetland. It's just that not all wetlands are bogs. A bog is a place that is highly acidic and is dominated by sphagnum moss. If you live in a place where it rains frequently, you've probably seen sphagnum moss. It's bright green, kind of fuzzy on a large scale, and when you look at it up close, it's almost like there are little one-inch trees all stacked up next to each other. It's also called peat. And it grows in areas where there's not much flow through of water. The moss, as it starts decomposing, becomes very acidic, and that stops all the processes. So you get peat forming, and there's methane bacteria that grow in there. If you puncture it, the methane will come out. And that's why you often have little fires growing on bogs where the methane bubbles up. In one of the classes I taught in Maine, we took all the students out to the middle of a bog and dug a hole and lit it on fire. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. You start with the lake and the peat starts growing in from the side until it eventually covers the whole lake and then the whole thing's a peat bog. But there's still water underneath until enough peat grows on it to reach all the way to the bottom. How long would it take to turn it from lake to peat bog? Some of these peat bogs were started during the last ice age, not 10,000 years. So, and some of them are still, depending how deep the lake was, if it's a shallow lake, it got grown over pretty quickly. If it's a deep lake, then there's probably still places in the middle, even though you walk across the whole thing and there's trees growing on it. If you dig deep enough, you'll find a patch of open water underneath. Because of the acidity of bogs, they are also a great place for preservation. If something gets stuck in the peat, it doesn't really decompose. Like people. Yep, there are bodies that are preserved in bogs for thousands of years. And while it might seem a little spooky, they actually give us a great snapshot into what life was like for people 2,000, 4,000, or even 10,000 years ago. But not all historical records have to take place in bogs. There are other wetlands that hold secrets of the past as well. In 1700, a massive earthquake shook the West Coast. And we're talking like a magnitude 9 earthquake. Here on our coastal wetlands, what we found out is that the ground subsided significantly after that earthquake here in, in our river valleys. Okay. So we find cedar trees buried six to eight feet under in the ground because the upland forest sank. The salt marshes grew up around it when the sea level came in again. So now we have a forest of dead tree stumps that stick out of salt water. What is your favorite wetland? Oh, I can't say that. I mean, there. if I'm standing there, it's my favorite wetland. <laughs> <laughs> I still think that the weirdest ones I, I remember are the mountain bogs in Scotland. Literally, you have a whole mountain covered in peat from the top to the bottom. It was created by humans, too. Back in the 17-something or other, the English landlords cleared all the forests out so they could graze sheep. And all these hillsides started getting covered with peat because from the Atlantic Ocean, all these clouds and moisture come in and hang in there. And then the sheep grazed anything edible. And they don't like peat, the sphagnum. So it grew up. And in some places, the mountaintop is covered in five or six feet of peat. And wow. it's from the top all the way down to the bottom. So you're like, oh, I'm doing wetland research. I'm also doing mountain research. <laughs> exactly. I'm climbing in the mountains of Scotland. 
And I've reached, oh, I've reached the top of the mountain. Oh, here's your wetland. <laughs> but what about the wetlands that are in drier parts of the world? We find, at least here in Washington State, and sort of towards Spokane, towards the eastern part, we have a lot of what we call ephemeral wetlands. They're wetlands that form with a snow melt. You get a little bit of vegetation coming in there and a few wetland species. Then by the time the summer runs around, they're all dry. And you have upland species coming in and growing in there. So is it a wetland or not? It's a wetland for six months of the year, and it's not a wetland for six months of the year. There are 80,000 of those little pocket wetlands in these little depressions in the surface in the springtime that have a whole little mini ecosystem in them. And then it just goes away in the summer when it dries up. It just away, dries up in the summertime. Do animals know that these ephemeral wetlands, these vernal pools, are going to be coming back every year? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's a major usage by migratory waterfowl. A.K.A. birds. As they migrate north, they come in here and they feed in these wetlands because there's a lot of little crustaceans growing in there. And then the little crustaceans go under the mud and hibernate for the summer and then they pop out again when it gets wet. Do you have a favorite fieldwork memory, maybe other than your Scottish Highland mountain bogs? <laughs> okay, well, yes, it's more of a hilarious event. People are always illegally trying to fill wetlands. But the funniest thing is seeing a big backhoe sunk all the way into the cab in the wetland. <laughs> and we have tons of pictures of those things on our files. You're like, oh, yes, I see that somebody tried to fill a wetland here yes. in the wetland bit back. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, whenever you were studying wetlands, what gear did you take with you? Rubber boots. <laughs> hip waders. How many times in your so, career do you think you filled your rubber boots or your hip waders with water? Rubber boots, lots of times. We always had a shovel, which we punched ahead of us to see if it was walkable. What was the most challenging thing about your job? Dealing with people. <laughs> who want to consider their wetland as part of their land instead of the water of, of the state or the U.S. And that's a problem because they have to pay land taxes on it. Wetlands are considered waters of the U.S., even though they have land on them. Wetlands became important in the 80s and 90s, but we haven't updated our legal system to take that into account. So that's not a scientific issue. It's all education and policy. And the interesting thing is for legal purposes, I think this is really funny. A wetland is a wetland if it has 51% wetland plants, and if it has just 49% wetland plants, it's an upland. But from an ecological point of view, it's a full gradation. There really is no distinct boundary, ecological boundary to a wetland. Okay, so if an elephant tramples a wetland and it had 51% of wetland plants in it, and then an elephant tramples it, and now it has 49% wetland plants in it, is it still a wetland? <laughs> well, that's only here in the U.S. We oh, don't true. have the elephants. <laughs> okay, good point, good point. <laughs> there's this idea that there's pristine ecosystem versus a non-pristine ecosystem. A wetland that's in the Olympic mountains that's completely trampled by elk in the wintertime is considered a pristine wetland because elk are natural. But if their cows trample it, then it's not. The legal aspects of wetlands is very much in limbo. As an ecologist, I couldn't care less. It's disturbed or undisturbed, whether it's human or animal or whatever. In ecology, there are sort of two paradigms. The old one is that an undisturbed, human undisturbed system is the best, but that's a belief. So you design all your experiments on that basis. 
all ecosystems are subject to a full range of disturbances. And sometimes you will shift the ecosystem to something else. And sometimes the ecosystem can restore itself. The system is constantly changing. Now with global warming, we have different rainfall events. So the wetlands are going to change. If you're in a regulatory arena, like I was at the Department of Ecology, the question is, if you impact the wetland, how do you compensate for that impact? So the question is, do you restore something to an undisturbed state and then leave it alone? Or can you even assume that that's possible? If you destroy a wetland because you build something on it, and then you build a wetland somewhere else and try and put it in that quote-unquote pristine level of wetland, what would then happen to that wetland over the next decade or two decades? Well, we've been analyzing it and it completely changes. We have never been able to predict when we've reconstructed what it's going to end up looking like. 20 years later, we have studies going back and all of our predictions are wrong. The point I've been trying to emphasize in my work throughout is you restore the process, not the structure. And if you have the process, if you bring the water regime to what sort of what it was like, and then the system will do something, but it's okay because you restored the process. And a lot of the mitigation has been focused on restoring the structure, but that's constantly changing. So you can't really predict what's going to happen. So that's been the big debate is, you know, structure versus process. I think we're slowly moving to restoring processes and then letting the system go. This is nature. It's just going right. to do what it wants to do. And that goes back to the original paradigm that there's a climax community. Every ecosystem has a climax and doesn't change after that. And that goes back to the 30s and the 40s. There was an ecologist who was going that way, and he had a lot of students, and that was where they went. There were some other ecologists who were going the other way, but they got shouted out. So throughout your long career working with saltwater and freshwater wetlands, have perceptions on wetlands changed at all? Well, yeah. I mean, wetlands didn't come into prevalence until the 1980s. So that's when people started realizing they were important and they started being regulated. I mean, you only have to look at Seattle and Tacoma and around here. All those wetlands got filled. Many of the U.S.'s large coastal cities are built in places that are great for transportation and shipping, which often means easy access to rivers and the ocean, a.k.a. an estuary or wetland at the mouth of a river. As the cities grew, more land was needed and the wetland could get filled in. This is a pretty classic journey of wetlands in the U.S., but occasionally we do get a story that is the opposite. On the Columbia Basin, where the irrigation water from the Columbia River is used, They've raised the aquifer by 300 feet to the surface. So right around Moses Lake, there used to be a ton of sand dunes, but now the groundwater has intersected the base of the sand dunes, and you get these fingers of wetlands among the sand dunes. Because they're taking the water out of the river and plopping it on land. Plopping it on land, and it's just raised the whole aquifer. And then along all the canals, the irrigation canals where the water gets transported, there's huge wetlands around them too. It's almost like people took all the wetlands out of the cities and then just plopped them into the farming regions. These created wetlands are mitigation for the fact of all the dams that have wiped out all the riverine wetlands in the Columbia River that existed before they put the dams in. What is your favorite part of your job? Being in a position to actually create change with this issue, you know, whether it was training or assessment methods or coming in and being able to see where we can make some progress and actually doing it. I've trained 1,400 people in the methods I've developed for looking at wetlands. So that sort of feels like an accomplishment. 
Well, thanks for talking about wetlands. Good, good. Well, talk to you later. And now for the episode recap. Wetlands can be lots of different things. They can be peat bogs that hold secrets from thousands of years ago. They can be salt marshes that change with sea level rise or earthquakes. They can be water pockets in otherwise dry places, forming for just a few months of the year as the snow melts. No matter what kind of wetland it is, they are a place of life. A place where both land and water animals come to visit or live. And because of where people like to build, they are disappearing. Wetlands became a part of the environmental conversation in the 80s and 90s, and since then, a lot of the discussion has been about how to restore them. Some folks say that we should rebuild them to look like we think they should look. Other folks, like my dad, say that we should focus on restoring the things the wetland does, rather than worry about how it looks. Because it probably won't look like how we want it to look in 20 years anyway. In order to replace wetlands we've destroyed, some wetlands have been created, like the irrigation wetlands of eastern Washington. Because we've poured so much water into that farmland, wetlands exist now where they wouldn't have before. It's not always a perfect solution, moving an ecosystem from one place to another, but sometimes it's better than nothing. If you're looking for a fun spring activity, check out a wetland near you. Spring is often a great time to see the life that lives in these pockets of water, whether it's migratory birds, frogs, salamander eggs, or cool plants like bog myrtle. Just remember to watch where you step and bring a spare pair of dry socks for the journey home. Thanks to all the scientists who have worked to get wetlands recognized as an important ecosystem over the last 40 years. And thanks to Washington State's Department of Ecology for hiring my dad in the 90s and bringing my family out to the West Coast. And thanks to you for tuning in.